it is that back to school time. And, and even if you don't have anybody in your, your household that's in school, it, it's just a reset time, isn't it? It's kind of that, that time of the year where we kind of reset and start getting back into patterns and that sort of thing. And, and as you're doing that, we just thought, what a great time it would be for us uh, as a fellowship uh, just to kind of uh, refocus, uh, realign, remind one another uh, about why we're here and what we're about. You see, I, I'm convinced from the Scripture that there is a very real enemy of our soul. Uh, I don't believe it's just some impersonal force. I, I believe that there is a real evil at work in the world. And I have become convinced that uh, that enemy of our soul will allow us to do a lot of things in our churches and not get real concerned about it. I don't think he gets real concerned about some of the trips we take or some of the, the fellowship events we have. Or At times, I'm not sure that he's even that concerned about some of the studies we do because he's kind of got us to the point where we, we get satisfied with head knowledge and don't, uh, don't apply it. But what I have discovered in my life personally, what I have discovered in life corporately of God's people, is that the enemy will work diligently to keep us from two things. The first is kingdom prayer, and the second is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he knows that's, that's the front lines. That's where kingdom territory is taken. And he will do anything and everything to oppose that. Uh, if he can't uh, uh, kind of get us to, to fall into some sort of gross sin or something, he'll just keep us distracted or keep us busy about secondary things along the way. And so what I wanted us to do this morning is part of just kind of a reset, is we're going to spend a couple weeks here at the start of this, this uh, fall season uh, to just focus around the question of, of who's your one. And particularly for us this morning, we want to just think in terms of the value of one. And I can think of no better place to do that than Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables, three stories. And in these three stories, he, he gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. And that's what I'm praying for myself. I'm praying for you as we gather together. God, would you just renew in us a heart like yours? Would you help us to value what you value? Would you help us to prioritize what it is indeed that you prioritize? Uh, the stories, my guess is for many of us are going to be very, very familiar. Even if you're not necessarily familiar with the Bible, uh, maybe you've heard of some of these imageries before. It's a story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then the longest of the three is what's been called the prodigal son. Some have said it might be better to talk in terms of the father instead of the son is what that parable teaches us, but we'll dive into those. Uh, but as we, we get into those, I, I want us to see kind of on the front end some common themes, but before we do, let's understand the setting. The setting is uh, given to us in the first couple of verses. It kind of sets up Jesus' teaching. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. They were all coming to Jesus. And Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with 
them. So we, we have these two groups of folks. They're, they're all watching Jesus. There are those who are, are far from God and, and their lives show it in, in, in non-religion and some of the activities they participate in. But I think there's also some folks that are far from God, even though they are very religious, the Pharisees, and they're grumbling. They're grumbling because Jesus receives folks that they perceive to be less than. They perceive to be not as good as tax collectors and sinners. And see, Jesus had this incredible ability to treat sinners differently than many of the religious folks of his day. And don't misread that. I mean, Jesus stood powerfully and consistently against sin. But at the same time, he reached out lovingly toward the sinner. And that's a, that's a tough balance. That is a tough, tough balance. Because sometimes we're stronger on one than the other. Sometimes maybe we, we, we feel like, hey, well, we've got to stand firm on some things and we've got to kind of say right is right and wrong is wrong. And these things dishonor God and they destroy people. And they absolutely do. And nobody understood that more than Jesus. But sometimes in our zeal for that, we treat people poorly or we just keep them at arm's length. On the other hand, sometimes we, we do love and we care about somebody, and, and so we, and our heart kind of goes out to them, and our, our tendency and our love for them is to say, can we rewrite the standard? Can we kind of lower it a little bit? Can we tweak it a little bit? Can we modernize it uh, a little bit along the way? Can we not call sin, sin? Jesus didn't do either of those. He stood powerfully and consistently against sin. He understood how destructive it was. That's why he came. That's why he intervened. That's why he did what he did. Because he understood the destructiveness of sin. But he also had this heart, this love for people. And it is that value that I think he communicates in these three stories. So let's, let's look at three common themes, and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the third of these three stories, because I think it has something to say very specifically to us today. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. So he's in the midst of this group, and some of them are really grumbling. So he told them this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And he continues, Or what woman? Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, there's some common themes in these parables. The first is something of great value was lost. Something of great value. 
One sheep, one coin that probably represented a, a day's worth of wages. Now, maybe you would think, well, that's not such a big loss. I mean, if you have 99 and 1% loss, I mean, who's going to sweat that? But it was valuable. It was valuable to this shepherd. And something of great value was lost. And Jesus was establishing this. Something of great value. And, and of course, the, the takeaway is to understand what Jesus wanted to make sure we understood is that people matter to God. That people are valued by God. The people that are a lot like us and the people that are a lot different from us. The people who vote the way we vote and vote radically differently than we vote. People matter to God. And if my heart beats like the Father's heart beats, they ought to matter to me too consistently in these parables is something of great value was lost. And not only was it lost, but it was worth the effort of an all-out search. That which was lost was worth the effort of an all-out search. So you have the shepherd, and he knows there's 99, but he is aware. And by the way, that puts his value. He's aware that one is missing. He leaves the 99. He goes in search of the one. It was worth the effort to go in search of the one, to put it up on his shoulders and carry it back. It was worth the effort for the woman to turn her house upside down, fire up the lights, sweep out the quarters to seek diligently because that which was lost was worth the effort of an all-out search. When Jesus reminds us that people matter to God, he reminds us that that's why he came, that they are worthy of an all-out search. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The, the, he came. He gave up the glories of heaven and took on human flesh in this, this babe whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time there in Bethlehem. Took on and he entered into this world that was marred and scarred and distorted by sin. And he walked smack dab in the middle of it. And he lived the life that you and I were called to live. And he died the death that my sin and my rebellion and my ignoring of God deserved. And he was buried and he was resurrected. He's ascended to the Father. And he did all of that because he said, you were worthy of the effort of an all-out search. I came to seek and to save Sometimes someone says, well, well they're, uh, they're seeking after God or I'm seeking after God. And what I have come to realize is the only, only reason I would ever seek after God is because he sought me first. That he is the seeking God. And if I have any inclination to begin to wonder about God, to, to seek after God, to ask questions about God, it is, it is because He has sought me first. And here's the implication. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be part of His search and rescue team. We are called to be part of the search and rescue team. If God has left you on this planet, if you are still drawing breath, and it appears that most of us in the room are, right? Then it's not without purpose. And a huge part of that purpose is God has called you to be a part 
of a search and rescue team. Because someone of great value is lost. And they need to be found. The third theme that permeates these stories is that retrievals result in rejoicing. Retrievals result in rejoicing. So the shepherd, he comes back and he's carrying the sheep and calls his friends and he neighbors and says, let's party, let's rejoice, let's celebrate because this one that was lost has been found. And in much the same way, the woman who has sought diligently for this coin, once she finds it, she, she calls her neighbors and they, they celebrate together because that which was lost, that which was of value and worthy of the effort of an all-out search has now been found. And that is always of cause for rejoicing. And then Jesus makes application. There is rejoicing in heaven when one person, one person repents of their sin and trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. You know, a good heart check is just to ask occasionally, what is it that brings joy to my heart? What is it that brings joy? And honestly, I think there are probably a lot of things. I mean, we're, we're so blessed and God is so good and gracious and there can be many, many, many things that bring joy to our heart. But among the things that bring joy to our heart and perhaps even one of the priority things that bring joy to our heart is, is there a joy when one person repents of their sin? And trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Do we understand what that means? Do we understand that someone that's lost has been found, someone who's dead is now alive, someone who was hell-bound is now secured in heaven? Does that cause my heart to rejoice? Some common themes in these stories. But then as we approach the third parable, it gets a little more nuanced. There are some new factors introduced into the story that stretch us and challenge us and cause us to, to think. And so I, I want to just kind of unpack this a little bit. I think some of these same themes are, are there, but it's nuanced. And so I want you to see some distinctives of this third parable. And the first distinctive is there was rebellion. There was rebellion. Something wasn't just lost. Someone wasn't just lost, but they had rebelled. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now understand, here's this young man, the younger of the two sons. And he comes to his father and says, Give me my share of the inheritance. Now, the older son would have had a, a double portion. So if, if we assume there's only two sons, he would have perhaps had a third of the estate. 
And, and it's almost as if he was saying, Dad, I don't want to wait around until you die. I wish you were dead. Give me my stuff. And he gets his stuff, and he sets out. He sets out because he knows better than the Father, right? He sets out because he knows that what's out there is better than what's in here. He sets out and he, he is convinced that, that he's sitting out on the, on the path of freedom, that which is going to give his life meaning and joy and purpose and pleasure, all of those things. And as he's leaving his father's house, he's convinced, I'm free. But see, he wanted to be free. But he ended up being enslaved and impoverished. That which he thought would give him freedom and meaning and purpose actually began to enslave and and impoverish him. And and when his money ran out, so did his friends. And he finds himself in a far country. And the only thing that he finds to be able to do is kind of to watch some pigs. And by the way, that's a horrible job for a good Jewish boy, right? I mean, you don't hang out with unclean animals. And not only that, but he's looking at these pods that they're eating which are hardly digestible by a human being and he's thinking maybe maybe his rebellion that which he thought would give him freedom ends up enslaved and impoverished now listen you can be enslaved and impoverished and live in a really nice home have a really good job you can pursue things that even if you don't experience it immediately somewhere along the way you begin to experience the enslavement and the impoverishment of, of soul the younger son stepped into rebellion and as he ended up impoverished and enslaved it prompted in him a repentance a repentance as he recognized his situation verse 17 but But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." So here he finally comes to himself, it says. He comes to his senses. He comes and recognizes, this is not what I signed up for. This is not how I saw this playing out. This is not what I thought it was going to be. And he begins to remember another life. He begins to remember life in his father's house. And in those moments, he recognized his own foolishness, even as he remembered the Father's goodness. He began to recognize this is the path I've chosen. And he sets that against the goodness of his Father. And he begins to understand that even a servant in his Father's house has it far, far, far better than he does as his own boss, as his own man. And he begins to long knowing that he doesn't deserve to be a son, but begins to hold out the hope that maybe, maybe, maybe in the Father's goodness, he might just possibly take him back as a servant, as a slave. As I think of this young son, I think of the 
the words of David as they're recorded in the psalm as he came to that brokenness over choosing his way instead of the Father's way. As he cried out to the Father, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He came to recognize what he had done. And uh, yes, other people were impacted and hurt and, and lives were ruined and destroyed and the ramifications of that would continue on for years. But he came to the broken understanding that primarily he had sinned against the Father and the Father's goodness and the Father's love. And he cried out in repentance. And the repentance gave way to reconciliation and rejoicing. To reconciliation and rejoicing. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate for this son my son was dead is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate and here you have this this incredible incredible moment you see in the far country the son learned about misery he learned about the misery of living life disconnected from and out from underneath the love of his father. But when he recognized his need and he came home and threw himself upon the mercy of his, his father, he learned about mercy. He learned about mercy. And this incredibly dramatic scene as Jesus paints this picture of, of this father who's scanning the horizon and he, he sees his son and, and breaking all protocol. He, he probably cast off an outer garment and, and perhaps tied up uh, that which would have hindered his movement and he, he runs to his son and his son begins his rehearsed speech, you know, I'm not worthy to be and he doesn't even get to finish the speech because of the embrace of the father. Father. And the father blows him away in his compassion. And he says, bring a robe. You put that on an honored guest. Put a ring on his finger, this symbol of authority. And oh yes, shoes. Because sons wear shoes. Servants don't wear shoes, but the son wears shoes. And the fatted calf that we've been saving for the most special of occasions, prepare it, get it ready, because there's nothing more worth rejoicing about than this son of mine who was lost and is now found, who is dead and is now alive again. And there's this reconciliation and there's this rejoicing. And it was more than this rebellious son could have ever hoped for. And he comes home. And it seems to tie in so well with the other parables. But I remember years ago when I was reading this, and the question came to mind, well, why didn't anyone search for the son? I mean, they searched for a sheep. They turned the house literally upside down looking for a coin. Why didn't anybody search 
before the Son. And you might argue, well, that wasn't the, the focus of that or whatever it is, but then I got to thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Pharisees are there. The tax collectors, the sinners, Jesus is targeting both these audiences. What if, what if, what if? What if there was somebody that was supposed to have searched for the Son? What if the older brother, what if that son should have searched for his younger brother? What if this son of this father was like Jesus, the, the son of his heavenly father, the son of man who came to seek and to save those who were lost? But that's not the picture of the Pharisees, and it certainly was not the picture of this son. In fact, is he begins to paint a picture of this son, and I want you to notice some things about this older son. And the first thing is that he had this sense of self-righteousness, this sense of self-righteousness. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound verse 28 but he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him but he answered his father look these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Here he is, and there's, there, there's no joy. There's, there's anger. There's resentment. There's this sense of, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I have always obeyed. I have always done the right thing, and which automatically begs the question, really? <laughs> really? I mean, it, is that true of any of us with our parents? <laughs> Those of you who are parents, even your best child, I mean, is that really true? <laughs> that never, 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 never did I disobey your command? And he had this sense of, I earned it. I deserve it. I'm good enough. Not only was there a sense of self-righteousness, but he had the spirit of a hired hand and not the spirit of a son. Verse 30, but when this son of yours, who's not even recognizing him as his brother, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There is not this, this sense of, of I'm this son and the father is graciously. All these things are mine because of the graciousness of the father. But there is this resentment. I'm, I'm working and I'm earning and I deserve it. And they don't even give me a, just even a little animal to celebrate. Failed to recognize the riches that he had already in the Father. He had approached all of his activity and all of his labor not in the spirit of a son who loved his Father, but in the spirit of a hired hand who deserved his wages. And thirdly, we see that he's the only one. He's the only one who missed the joy. 
I mean, think about it. Uh, The whole chapter, everybody is partying except him. Everybody's celebrating except him, right? The, the, The shepherd brings a home party, rejoicing. The woman calls her neighbors and friends, found the coin, rejoicing. The son comes home, the father embraces him, kills the fattened calf, the whole family, the servants, everybody's rejoicing. The only one in the whole chapter that missed the joy was the older son. And I wonder, do we sometimes have in our churches older sons and daughters who show up and do with the spirit of a hired hand? And yet there's a lack of joy. It's a lack of joy in their relationship with the Father. It's a lack of joy in the grace that the Father extends to others. And they're doing their duty. They're checking the boxes. But they're missing the joy. They're missing the joy. But I want you to see the graciousness of the Father. We read it just a moment ago. See, the Father also reached out to him. Did you notice that? We read it in verse 28. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Not only did the father have compassion on this wayward son, but he had compassion and love for this son who stayed home, but whose heart was still far from the father. And he, and he came to him and he entreats him because he wants him to come in and, and experience what everybody else is experiencing. He doesn't want him to miss the joy. And as I was reading these parables years ago now, still remember it. As I was working through this, and it just struck me. And it was such a challenging and such a convicting thought. And it has stayed with me that every time in my regular reading of God's Word, I come across Luke 15. This challenging statement comes back to my heart to stretch me. And here it is. It's possible to hang out at the Father's house and not have the Father's heart. It's possible for me and for you to hang out at the Father's house, to spend a lot of time doing good things and not have the Father's heart. So here's what I want you to hear today. I don't know exactly where this morning finds you, but God the Father invites you to come home. To come home and to share His home, but also to share His heart. 
And maybe you're here today, and, and in this third story, you're, you most are identifying now with this younger son because you said, you know, I don't know if I did everything he did, but, but I, I know, I know I'm not connected to the Father. I know I've gone my way instead of his way, and I'm beginning to feel some of that impoverishment of soul, and, and I, I want to come home, and I'm not 100% sure he'll even receive me or accept me, and I want you to hear this morning, no matter where you've been or what you've done, no matter how far you've wandered or how, how dark or ugly the past, the Father is looking and He's waiting for you to come home because He sent Jesus to seek and to save those who were lost. And today, we want to help you. If you're here, before you leave this room, would you make your way back to that next steps area? We would love to continue this conversation and and talk with you a little more fully and completely about how you can know the joy of forgiveness, the joy of reconciliation. But let me speak to perhaps many, if not most of us in the room. You're here in the Father's house, right? But that doesn't guarantee we have the Father's heart. And the Father is entreating you. I don't want you just to hang out at the house. I want you to share my heart. I want you to value what I value. I want you to love who I love. I want you to be a part of my search and rescue team. I want you to share my heart and share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it starts when we begin to understand the incredible value of one one person that matters to God we just hosted uh, the global leadership summit the powerful speakers and teachings and one of the speakers was a young a woman by the name of Liz Bohannon. She's the co-founder and CEO of Seiko, a, a globally a socially conscious fashion brand. It's helping thousands of, of women in Africa and, and across the world. But she talks about how God kind of had to reframe her life and perspective from this big grand thing, like I had changed the world. To the value of one. Let me share with you a little bit of her story. My big dream was a vision for a corporate philanthropy initiative that involved millions of dollars and was going to improve the lives of millions of women and girls across the globe. It was a really big dream, you guys. So many zeros, so many lives. Just wait. This was going to be big. And then one day, Sitting in my cubicle on the 18th floor, everything changed. I was doing some research for a client when I stumbled across a little video called The Girl Effect. The video starts by bemoaning the big problems in the world, poverty, AIDS, hunger, war. And then it proposes that perhaps the solution of it all is investing in a girl. There's a brief two-second frame where the only word on the otherwise black screen is the word girl, representing one single 
girl. And because it was only text with no visual to accompany it, I subconsciously started scouring my brain for the face of one girl to visualize this point that I had already agreed with. One girl who grew up in extreme poverty and had unjustly and inexplicably been forced to shoulder the burden of the world's big problems. And you know what? In that split second, I couldn't conjure up an image of one single real girl that I actually knew. And it stopped me dead in my idealistic grand plan, big dream. Someday I'm going to help bring a million girls out of poverty tracks. I'd happily donate what I could to a cause or show up to a march or post the relevant hashtag on social media. But the actual life I was building there on the 18th floor of this global communications firm was entirely unaffected by the economic realities facing billions of women. And while I was busy thinking and dreaming and scheming about a million girls, hear this next line, the sacred importance and value of just one got lost somewhere along the way. With tears streaming down my face, I realized there was quite a delta between what I said I cared about and the life I was building. My friendships, my community, my story. With an honest evaluation, it was obvious that my story still had a neat and sturdy wall around it that allowed me to engage intellectually in the issues and the calls while keeping me safely in my own little reality. These walls allowed me the luxury of choosing just when and where and how I would allow my story to be affected by hers. After having this split-second realization that I didn't have a relationship with a single girl who grew up in extreme poverty, I traded my grand plan and my big dreams that I held in my back pocket for some day, and my focus shifted entirely. In that very moment, against every ounce of my millennial-minded, big-dreaming self, I started dreaming small. Really small, in fact. Remember that scene in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids when Wayne Zielinski's kids get accidentally shrunk to a quarter-inch tall? Well, you could say my big dreams got Zielinski'd. My new dream became not landing my dream job or bringing a million girls out of poverty, but rather simply closing the gap between what I said I cared about and my actual day-to-day life. I wanted to make friends. I wanted to build a community that would reflect my desire to be a co-creator in a world that is a little bit bigger and brighter than more than just the one I was currently occupying. I wanted to learn not just from facts and figures and articles and documentaries, but in real life, on the ground, from those who were experiencing the issues and challenges I said I cared about. I wanted my story to be tied up with hers in a way that was messy and broken and beautiful and small. I wanted to just know one girl. And that was the new microscopically small dream. Meet and become actual friends with one girl. I needed zero degrees, zero connections, zero fancy job titles, zero million dollar budgets, zero strategic plans, and zero people to give me permission, which all of course meant I had zero excuses. That big dream I held in my back pocket for some day may have sounded impressive, but it did not compel me to make any real moves. And let's be very clear that planning and dreaming is not the same thing as moving and actually doing. As Bob Goff says, no one will be remembered for what they just planned to do. But you know what happened within hours of temporarily giving up the someday big dream 
and instead accidentally dreaming really, really small, I became a doer instead of just a dreamer. And I made a move. And so today, we want to challenge one another to make a move. To recognize the value of one. And to challenge one another, to encourage one another, to support one another. Not that I have to go out and change the whole world. That I can just start with one. We're going to ask one another, who's your one? The one that you will value the one that is worthy of the effort of an all-out search, the one in whose retrieval will bring rejoicing in heaven. Who's your one? And so I'm going to ask you to find in your worship folder a bookmark that looks just like that. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to make a move. Make a move to... Take a first step. We're going to just challenge one another around this who's your one. And the challenge is very simple. By God's enabling grace, I'm going to identify one person in my relational network to pray for and seek to share the gospel with over the next 12 months. Some of you already have more than that, but just as you begin to think through that, who is that one, God, who is that one where I live, where I work, where I play, the social circles I travel in, who is that one, Lord, that you most specifically are laying on my heart right here, right now? And what I'm going to ask you to do is, at the top of that, it's perforated, it tears off. Just going to ask you to write a name. Maybe, maybe you just want to write a first name. If you're not even comfortable doing that, if you just want to write an initial, whatever you're comfortable with, and I'm going to ask you just to tear that off. And in just a few moments, I'm going to invite you to do what folks have done already in an earlier service. And I'm going to ask you just to come and put that name here. I've already got one down here. Put one down here. And maybe just pause and pray for them right here, right now. And when it's all said and done, we'll take these up and we're going to have other folks partner with you in praying over these names in the weeks and months ahead. The second part of the challenge is to pick up in the lobby. There's copies in both lobbies as you exit today. A 30-day Who's Your One devotional prayer guide. And it's very simple, very short read. It just gives you some ways to pray for your one. And listen, you do... Don't have, if, don't have to do it 30 straight days. Do it five days a week for six weeks. Do it three days a week for 10 weeks. I don't care. <laughs> just, just make your way through that. Allow that to kind of stretch you and, and help you to pray Scripture even around your one. And then I'm going to just to challenge you to encourage other Christ followers to pray for and seek to share the gospel with their one during the next 12 months. So if you're in a Sunday school class, you're in a small group, a D group, a journey group, whatever it is, that you're, you're going to spend time and you're just going to say, hey, maybe when we're together, we're going to spend some time. Let's pray for our one right now. 
Uh, maybe just to ask one another on an occasional basis, hey, have you had any opportunity to, to, to listen, to, to eat, to share a meal, to spend time with them, to serve them, to, to share the gospel, to plant a seed, to water a seed, maybe even uh, to re- rejoice in the harvest, and just to encourage one another in that over this next 12 months. So by God's enabling grace, I will. But it starts. It starts by recognizing the value of one. So what I want to do, I want to just say a quick prayer for us, and then we're just going to open up the altar area here, and we're going to ask you just to come. It's, It's a first move. It's a first step just to say, God, I'm taking this challenge. I'm going to value what you value, and I want my heart to beat like your heart beats. And just spread those cards all over this altar as an act of your first prayer for them today. Let's do it. Father, bring to our minds that one that you value, that you have intentionally placed in our orbit. And Father, I pray by your enabling grace that you'd show us how to pray for them like we've never prayed before. You'd help us to see and seize opportunities to plant or water or harvest like we've never done before. And then, Father, I'm just going to ask, Lord, that you'd help us as a church, you'd help us as groups to encourage one another like we never have before. Father, to you be the glory, and let us rejoice together as you move in the lives of our one. Father, take these moments and be honored in them. And we just open up the altar to you now, and we invite you to come and place the name of your one anywhere here on the altar. As folks continue to come, would you just would you just pray? Would you pray for your one? Would you pray for yourself? Would you pray for us as a church that more and more and more we wouldn't just hang out at the Father's house, but we would truly and genuinely have the Father's heart? area is just going to continue to be open and you can continue to drop names off there today we want to help you personally take your next step whatever that is in your relationship with Christ maybe you need to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ maybe it's time to go public with your faith in the waters of baptism maybe it's time to connect to a group or a serving opportunity or just ask a question head back to that next steps area we want to help you today if you're new here I'd love to have a chance to meet you I'm going to head back that way please come by and introduce yourselves but as we just kind of formally end this service and walk into this challenge I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to sing together and then as we do Pick up one of those devotional guides as you leave today, and let's see what God does when we value the one. Let's worship Him together.